Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? When Johnny Veal was 17 years old, something catastrophic happened. He and a friend were convicted of killing two police officers at Chicago's notorious Cabrini Green public housing estate. When he entered prison, he was 19 years old. Almost 50 years later, he was up for parole again. He was the epitome of rehabilitation. He'd been through 18 previous parole hearings by now. He'd obtained 25 college degrees, became a mentor for other inmates. He played several instruments in a band and helped older inmates prepare for the possibility of their lives ending in prison. If the system was truly about correction, would he finally get parole? Writer Ben Austin has taken a look into one of the lesser-known parts of the criminal justice system, the process by which inmates are assessed for parole. Ben, welcome to you. Thank you so much, Andy. Thanks for having me on. You provide a pretty thorough timeline of the American prison system and incarceration rates from 1790, when a Philadelphia jail became the first state prison. What was that turning point 50 years ago that became what we know now as the mass incarceration system in the United States of America? Yeah, 50 years ago when Johnny entered prison, there were 200,000 people total in the United States in prison, every state and the federal system. Today, there is 1.2 million, 1.6 million at the peak about, about a decade and a half ago. So this is really the, the, the start of mass incarceration. And parole, turns out that it plays a big part in that. Right around then, many states across the country were, were trying to get rid of parole or trying to get rid of sentences that were, were called indeterminate, which they're, you're not in for a fixed amount of time. A parole board decides when you get in. And eliminating those sentences really was the start of, a, of, of sentences that got longer and more certain with less opportunities to be released. Parole differs from state to state, but can you just give me an idea about the process? I mean, you've sat in on a number of parole hearings for research for this book. What, what are these hearings like? Yeah, yeah, you're right. They, they differ all over, but there, there are many similarities. You have a group of people sitting down and interviewing at some point uh, somebody who is a candidate for parole. And they're generally assessing whether that person is a safe bet to return to society, whether they've done enough to offset their crime, whether they're rehabilitated, whether they're unlikely to commit another crime. And, you know, that in theory sounds really good. Uh, in practice, it's really complicated. You know, how do you know when somebody is telling you the truth about their remorse? Um, how do you how do you evaluate somebody inside a system that doesn't really value rehabilitation? That is actually criminogenic, meaning you know prisons here create more criminal behavior than than correct for it. Uh, what does it mean that it, that if if people are denied for for decades that they're they're warehoused in prison and and these these sentences can, can feel indefinite. Um, so it's, it's problematic. You know, it, it ends up being very much about storytelling and about, about uh, trying to tell a story that is more powerful than the one from the past of the crime. 
and that means that you you've moved on from it but but not to just you're you're more than the worst thing you ever did so what have you done since then and that's really what parole boards are supposed to assess everything that's happened since the crime they're not judges at sentencing they're not determining what a what a punishment should be they they they're supposed to determine when a punishment ends I mean, if you take away how high the stakes are for certainly the uh, prisoner applying for parole, it's an extraordinary uh, form of rhetoric or storytelling. Do they receive any kind of support, uh, whether it be formal or informal, how to improve their story for them to sound more credible and more, therefore, rehabilitated? That's a fantastic question because, you know, a, a better system of parole would... A, you know, tell someone from the beginning of their incarceration what they need to do to to get out, and you know. So here are the steps you need to achieve, and and then you can graduate to these other levels uh, and eventually be released. Few states do that. Few states give any guidance, and so you have sort of what we would call uh, you know prison lawyers, uh, you know guys who are incarcerated who who are advising one another and sort of like trying to figure out the system. And then you have a lot of volunteer groups that do this work, that do exactly what you just said, which is a kind of coaching. And the coaching is kind of twofold. So the first part is, you know, you need to, you need to understand why you did something. You under, need to understand how you got there. And that's a difficult process in itself. And then you need to figure out how to talk about it. And to to tell a compelling version of it in front of a board when the stakes are so high, you know, I mean, like, you know, it's hard enough to sort of appear in front of an audience, but but to do this when when your life, your freedom is 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 at is at risk, um, you can't, you know, that you can imagine some of the things like you you can't be defensive, you can't speak in passive voice, you have to make eye contact, you don't want to seem aggressive. There are all these things that you're, you're coached on, but are very difficult and, and often somewhat unfair to be to be evaluated on them. It seems like such a peculiar product of the U.S. incarceration system that mm. the energy is put in through groups like Uncommon Law to uh, to put in this energy to uh, workshop people's stories to get them out of prison. When in fact it's such a sort of small band aid to the overall solution. In an ideal world, that energy would be spent on. Uh, I suppose, not um, allowing some of these prisoners to end up in prison in the, in the first place. <laughs> it's slightly surreal in that sense. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, the first part of your question or, or is I'd say we, we sort of got this system from you guys, that that Australia is one of the first places to have a, a system like parole, which is a, a kind of mark system where people who are incarcerated could graduate to to their release. There isn't a small number of people in prison in the United States who who, who need a, a chance like this. There there are hundreds of thousands. Um, that's still you know uh, you know a fraction of of the total prison population. Hundreds of thousands of people who are serving sentences that that might never get a shot at release. They need something like parole. They need something like like this in order to be seen, literally to be seen and heard, to have any shot at release, to show that they're not. The 17-year-old or the 25-year-old who committed a crime, but now in their 40s or 50s or even 70s or 80s, and that they're completely different people. Uh, but you're totally right that um, even imagining uh, a better parole system, you would need to sort of uh, 
you know, reverse engineer a better prison system. You would need to actually have rehabilitation at the core of that prison, of that prison system. And then you would also think, well, what are some alternatives to prison? What are some alternatives even to to care for people who are victims of crimes who are who are who are often ignored by the system as well? Yeah, Australia may have been somewhat of the genesis for the parole system, but obviously Australia's incarceration rates aren't Mm. the same as America's. We recently got some interesting new statistics back about recidivism uh, for inmates here in Australia uh, being on the rise. In the, the, the book, you talk about the fact that a quarter of all state prison cases in the US were people who had made a technical violation of their parole. They'd sort of run foul of the system. They're not committing new or violent crimes. They're doing things like staying out past curfew or being uh, you know, being caught on the wrong side of, of the parole system. Can the number of restrictions put on parolees make parole unviable? Completely. I mean, this is the other part of the, the, the counterproductive and the absurdity of the system in the United States is that when people get out on parole, the restrictions we have on them are so onerous that it's really setting people up to fail. At the moment when people need the most state support, when they need the most social services, in the United States, we deny them that. We make it difficult to get a job. We make it difficult to get housing. We make it difficult to, to get loans. Uh, we get difficult to, to have movement around, um, to even see many family members. You're exactly right. Like what we're doing is cycling people back into prison. And for some people who defend the incarceration system and they say it's about public safety, uh, a quarter of all people entering prisons haven't even committed another crime. We have this sort of uh, circular system of, of mass incarceration and then mass supervision, which then is feeding itself in this loop. And uh, it's expensive, it's cruel, and it doesn't keep us more safe. Uh, you would think that we would be, be doing much more to, um, to change that. And we are taking, some states are taking steps to do things like uh, to reduce restrictions on people once they're released from prison. Author Ben Austin is here on RN Drive. We're talking about the concept of parole in the United States. Let's return to the story of Johnny Veal, who was convicted of killing two police officers in Chicago when he was just 17 years old. There's more or less two twists to his story. The first is that Johnny never, in fact, committed these crimes, did he? He he has remained consistent in saying he's innocent. Uh, even though he's coming up for parole... And a parole board, what they value is a story of remorse, is a story of, 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 of saying you're guilty and saying that you've overcome that and taken responsibility. So it's against his interest to continue to insist he's innocent, but he has. And I've researched this story. I've researched his case. And the, the trial, the conviction is, is full of many holes. The second twist, really, is about his uh, application for parole. Did Johnny Veal successfully get parole? He did in the end, in, in, a, in, in a very surprising way. I mean, I, I wrote this book and reported this book over several years. And uh, really, the, the arc of the book is, is uh, a three-year effort for him, him working up to this parole hearing. It seemed incredibly unlikely. One of the other things that happens here in the United States at these hearings Uh, Since his case was about two police officers who were murdered, 
police officers show up by the dozens at these parole hearings. They come in uniform with their service revolvers. They stand and they say, I'm here to protest the release of Johnny Veal. It is a really powerful display. And the parole board is seeing them. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a message that there are going to be repercussions. I don't mean physical ones, but, but political and professional ones for the board members if they, if they vote for release. And despite all that, and Johnny Veal had never gotten a single vote for release, not once, in, in, in almost 40 years of coming before the parole board. And in 2021, he got eight of 12 board members to vote for his freedom. What's he doing now? He is working. He is married. He's paying taxes. He has a home. He is uh, living a, a life that's fairly normal and also very productive. And one of the things that's still happening, though, is that he is cast as this kind of monster. Uh, even I see him regularly, and he's he's anything but. But he's in his. He's just turned seventy. And he's still sort of described as somebody who's a danger to society. And everyone on the parole board who voted for him is no longer on the parole board. Some of them were removed. Some of them were not reappointed. Some of them just uh, left. But, but not one single one of those members who, who voted for him is still there. And uh, the discrepancy, the, the distance between sort of the, 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 the idea of him that's being bandied about and the reality couldn't be greater. And it says so much about our punishment system in the United States. It's about race. It's about fear. And it's not about logic or about numbers or statistics. And with a certain level of irony that the tax that Johnny Veal is generating for, for his community is going in some part to the next generation of parole board members and their assessment of uh, those prisoners in the US justice system. It's a fascinating book, Ben. A real pleasure to talk to you. Ben Austin has been my guest. His book, Correction, Parole, Prison and the Possibility of Change is out now. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Fantastic to talk with you. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. Andy Park. 